the the canons themselves say um, something contrary to what the customs are, and they specifically reprobate the other customs. So you would have that clause, typically anything to the contrary notwithstanding, or something like that, that would indicate nothing else. It's all forbidden. Okay. So um, that's that's for customs that are contrary to the canons of the law. If you have customs that are contrary but are not specifically reprobated by the law, there's a little bit of wiggle room. Usually they are considered suppressed, but then there might be situations in which they, they can uh, remain in effect. Uh, and one of those situations is, uh, two of those situations are if they are a centenary or immemorial customs. So uh, what's a centenary custom? Without looking it up, what's a centenary custom? Right, it's existed for at least 100 years. And what would an, an immemorial custom therefore be? For Well, specifically, what do you think it would mean? Immemorial. What does Memory that mean? Of. Pardon? Immemorial. No, no, no. Like you can't even pinpoint when. No, immemorial. In, per in perpetuity. No, no. Memo what's the heart of that? The word memory. Immemorial, not in memory. In other words, um, an immemorial custom is a custom that uh, always existed um, uh, in the consciousness of the oldest person in the community. There never was a time when anyone in the community could remember uh, anything else. So it's immemorial, okay? Uh, an immemorial custom. So if you have an immemorial or a centenary custom, uh, that is contrary to the canons of the law, it may be possible to keep that. Uh, normally it's considered suppressed, but it may be possible to keep it uh, if the bishop uh, decides we should keep it, you know, for, for and it's his judgment call, right? So, um, so these are, these are, you know, situations that occasionally come up that, uh, that have to be uh, uh, reckoned with, right? So you have, um, those that are absolutely, they're contrary to the law and are reprobated by the law, they're out, they're suppressed. Others that are contrary to the law, but they're old, they're, they're 100 years old or they're immemorial, whatever it might be, sometimes they can be kept. That's basically what I'm saying. Okay? Um, however, most laws, most customs really are not connected with law. Most customs are praetor use. They are outside the law. see that. Greater use. Okay. They're outside the law. The law just doesn't have anything to do with them. You know, there's a there's a an immemorial custom in your parish that the um, the Legion of Mary every year um, takes up a collection for poinsettias for Christmas. You know, that's that could be an immemorial custom. It has nothing to do with law. Great, you know, um, fine, you know, uh, the law has no, nothing to say about that, you know. And most customs in in the church are of that sort. That's just the way life is, you know. Um, so uh, and the law just has nothing to do with anything that's outside of uh, any customs that are praetor use, uh, which are outside the law. Okay. All right, and then the last canon in this introductory section, canon six, the 
Again, it's tying up loose ends as the code comes into effect in 1983, but it's still relevant if there's any question. Uh, when this code takes force, the following are abrogated. The Code of Canon Law promulgated in 1917, that one, not this one. Um, other universal or particular laws contrary to the prescripts of this code, unless other provisions expressly made for particular laws, any universal or particular penal laws whatsoever issued by the Apostolic See, unless they are contained in this code, and other universal disciplinary laws regarding matters which this code completely reorders, and insofar as they repeat former law, the canons of this code must be assessed also in accord with canonical traditions. So it's tying up a lot of loose ends. Uh, first of all, it says the following are abrogated. As soon as the 1983 code came into um, force, the Code of Canon Law of 1917 was abrogated, right? So that's no longer in effect, um, except we'll see in some ways it, it really is in effect, but, but basically the 1917 code is abrogated, right? Then <clears throat> any other laws, universal particular, whatever it is, that are contrary to the code uh, are abrogated, unless there's something specific, some specific provision made in the code. Um, a very important um, paragraph here, any universal or particular penal laws whatsoever issued by the Apostolic See unless they are contained in this code. So this is a penal law, which is uh, something that in, in um, the United States, in, uh, when they were educating canon lawyers, when I was being educated, penal law was not considered a big deal. Because this is before all the sex abuse came to light. So it was kind of given short shrift. And uh, when all of these sex abuse cases came to light, we, we had to brush up on our, on our code of canon law. And this canon became very important because what happens in this, uh, we're talking about penal law. What happens in the case of uh, a priest who is accused of molesting um, a minor? in say, you know, 1978, what law applies? That's the question. And off the bat, does anybody have a guess? Law 1978? Pardon? Existing law in 78 or? The law that applied in, so, yeah, so this is, this is, uh, this priest is being accused now in 2021 of something that allegedly happened in 1978. The penal law that applies is the law that applied at the time of the alleged incident or incidents, whatever it was, right? So, um, so we had to go back and, and, um, and, and figure these things out because uh, the, the, some of the crimes and penalties were different in, in the 1917 code from the 1983 code. So uh, that's important. But once 1983 came, uh, first Sunday of after 1983, then the penal uh, laws from 1917 uh, were, uh, were um, abrogated from that point forward. But, but they still applied to anything that happened before the 1983 code was promulgated. What do they do in a case of if someone makes an accusation all those years ago and the priest has subsequently died? Well, he can't be penalized <laughs> by us. But do they, do, they, do they still pursue it as far as, you know? Oh, they're doing that. It's a, it's a big business. You know, that's, that's the end thing. You know, you accuse some priest of, you know, doing something 40 years ago and he might be dead and the bishop, uh, bishop is dead. Um, and, and any witnesses who could say anything to the contrary, no. So uh, uh, you're going to fight us, you're going to take us to court, or do you want to settle? 
Do they, do they go up to the archdiocese or the particular parish where, where the priest was? Do they what? Do they go up to the archdiocese or the parish where he... They go after everybody. They sue everybody. Oh, so what, they do it out of whatever sticks. Yeah. Yeah. When I was pastor, I had I had a, a lawsuit against against me. But it was for something that happened uh, in the in the parish. And I, th I think it was, nine, it was 1970, an, an alleged incident um, of a, a redemptorist, right? Because the parish was run by the redemptorists. Uh, something allegedly happened back then, and, and I think he's dead, and redemptorists are, have all moved on, you know. So they're suing the parish, and I, as pastor, represented the parish, so I was being sued. My, my poor replacement, um, Father Sean Conley, six years ordained, 34 years old, um, and he's he's administrator of uh, that parish and, and the neighboring parish. And he's he's in office for less than a month and he gets sued again for something that allegedly happened decades ago. You know? So that's what goes on. So they sue. Um, the lawyers in our midst could could uh, inform us better than I, than I could. But they sue the parish. They sue the pastor. They sue the cardinal. They sue the archdiocese. They they just sue. Yeah, that's how you, you do these lawsuits. You, know, you sue everybody that you can. Father. Yeah. Those are civil. Those are civil matters, right? I mean, civil court, not canon, not. Correct. Yeah. yeah, we're talking about the the Child Victims Act. Yeah, those are outside of the canon law, though. That's. Those are all. Oh, yeah. Yeah, those are suits being taken under the main courts. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Right. The, that, I was just answering the question. Yeah, but. Uh, yeah. But yeah. Those are different courts. Those are not ecclesiastical courts. Yeah. No. Good point. Okay. But anyway, that's what's going on. So, um, and the, and the, um, you know, the trick is, as I said, um, you have something that, that it's called credible could have happened, you know, who knows, you know, and then, and then it's, it's a game, you know, I mean, uh, th does the archdiocese want to marshal the resources to fight this? And we only have a certain amount of money. We only have a certain amount of personnel. Or do we just say, how much do you want? You know? So a lot of these, uh, the, the poor deceased priest could be completely innocent, but you know it's it's cheaper. Right. So, but um, yeah, the cardinal. Did, uh, are you guys invited to those Zoom meetings the cardinal has? Oh, okay, he he has Zoom meetings periodically with the, with the clergy, and um, he's mentioned this. He mentioned this at the latest Zoom meeting he had uh, was about a week ago. And he also uh, uh, mentioned it here. He's mentioned it a number of times. We have, I think, about 1,700 lawsuits against the Archdiocese as a result of the Child Victims Act. And uh, about 1,000 of those are like serious cases. So, uh, yeah, so it's, it's causing a fortune. I forget how many law firms he has in, they have involved with this. It's, it's, a, it's a big deal. Anyway. But in terms of, of canon law, the, um, the crimes and penalties that we're talking about in canon law, that's a separate issue. And that's, that's what we're dealing with in this, in this course. So the, the penal law um, that, that was in effect at the time of the alleged incident, that's what applies. Okay? So you, you don't apply, normally as a principle of law, you don't apply laws retroactively. Certainly you don't apply penal laws retroactively. And the, the whole the whole question about you know suspending um, this um, uh, 
this law that says you you, um, you have to report an alleged instance with a certain period of time, you know, um, and saying, well, that, that's out the window. You know, um, there, there's a reason why there are time limits on these things, because uh, people's memories get faulty and all that kind of thing. You know? All right, so universal disciplinary penal laws um, and also abrogated um, other universal disciplinary laws um, regarding matters which is called completely reorders. That we, you know, don't worry about that. Um, once in a while it comes up. Okay, so these are, this is all tying up loose ends, these first six canons, right? Now we get into um, Title I of Book One, which is entitled Ecclesiastical Laws. So without looking at anything, what do you think ecclesiastical laws are? Can't hear you. Well, yeah, that's good. Yeah, church laws. Yeah, that's what ecclesiastical means. Um, in, in the, the code, sorry, the divine law. Uh, in fact, just the opposite. Okay, that, that's the point. Um, the uh, in in law, in, in in church law, you have, as you recall, there are two types of law. There is divine law. There's human law. Divine law includes natural law, right, and divine positive law. Then, uh, then there are human laws. Now, there are plenty of divine laws in the Code of Canon Law, you know, um, that we're, that's what we're about, you know, but, um, but there are other laws that are, that are composed by human beings, and those are the ones that we're talking about now. Um, if there's a divine law, there's not too much the Code can, can tell you about it, except this is the law, you know, it can't say, well, you don't have to follow this law on, you know, on, on alternate Thursdays or something. You can't, right? Because uh, it's, it's divine law. It's not passed by human beings. So, for instance, um, we will see uh, in a few weeks in, um, in marriage law, the, uh, there are all sorts of impediments to marriage, right, uh, which makes a marriage invalid. So if a, um, I'm skipping ahead now, if, if a, a baptized Catholic, say a baptized Catholic guy, wants to marry an unbaptized girl and they go ahead and do it, the marriage is invalid. That's an impediment of, of um, ecclesiastical law. It's an impediment the church has imposed for very good reasons. You can think of the pastoral reasons why you would have a law like that. Right? We'll get into them, right? It's called disparity of cult and we'll get into it. Um, so typically when you're uh, preparing uh, couples for marriage, um, you have to deal with things like that, especially in this area. We have a lot of Catholic Jewish weddings. So we need to get dispensations. Uh, dispensation is relaxation of an ecclesiastical law in a particular case. It's a rela relaxation of an ecclesiastical law in a particular case. So uh, I've presented in the past on exams, and who knows, you might get something like this. So, uh, scenarios, right? So the, a scenario that I would present might be There'd be a number of factors in, uh, in a marriage case, and you have to kind of sort them out and, and figure out what has to be done. So I could say, you know, John and Jill, John's a Catholic, Jill is, is Jewish. Um, they, they want to get married, um, and um, Jill was, uh, was married once before to a Jewish guy, and uh, various other things. So um, what do you do? And I've had guys uh, answer, well, you have to get a dispensation, um, from disparity of cult for, because of the difference of religion 
for John to marry Jill. And also you have to get a dispensation from previous marriage. So in the same breath, I've had some students say, you can dispense from this law that the church has that says Catholics can't marry unbaptized persons. And also you can dispense from this divine law that says, you know, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. It's all kind of the same thing. That's a danger of getting too into the weeds with church law. And it's a danger that has been a problem for guys in parishes. They forget. One is of ecclesiastical law. That's the kind of laws that we're going to be speaking about here. Can you see me? Sorry. Okay. One is of divine law. The other is ecclesiastical law. So you can dispense the ecclesiastical law, but you can't dispense divine law. You know? I mean, you need bread from wheat and wine from grapes as the material for the Eucharist. A bishop can't dispense from that. He can't say, well, okay, in my diocese, you can use Coke and potato chips, you know, as Jesuits did back in the 60s. So I'm told. No, you can't dispense from these things. That's divine law. Okay. You get the difference. Okay. So remember that because sometimes we forget. We're dealing sometimes with divine law. We can't fool around with divine law. It's what it is. That's it. You know? But we fool around with other things. And sometimes we really do fool around with them. Ecclesiastical laws, that's what we're talking about. All right? So ecclesiastical laws is Title I. So speaking now about these ecclesiastical laws, man-made laws, Canon 7 simply says a law is established when it is promulgated. Now, remember, that's part of the definition of a law, that a law has to be formulated and promulgated by the one who has care for the community. What does promulgate mean? Sent out. Sent out. Yeah, published. Published. People have to be told about it. So it's not just formulated. And the bishop can't just write down a law on a piece of paper at his desk and put it in a drawer. He's got to promulgate it. He has to let people know about it. So it has to be promulgated. And a law does not go into effect until it is promulgated. So normally it has to be drafted in writing by the person who is qualified to do that. So it would be the pope or the bishop of the diocese, whatever it is. If you have the green commentary on page 57 on the left-hand column, almost at the bottom, it mentions often there are three separate dates marking different parts of putting a law into effect. So you have the date of issuance. And often in Vatican documents, they'll simply assign a convenient date. So on the Feast of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary this year of our Lord, just to attach it to something to make it more memorable. So that's the date of issuance. 
the date of promulgation, that's when, when it actually, they come out and, and tell, you, tell you we have a new law, right? Uh, and also uh, the date the law has binding force. Okay? The date of promulgation is most of the time different from the, the date the law has binding force. So um, we have, for instance, the, the, um, the Code of Canon Law itself, right? Um, it was uh, issued on uh, January 25th, 1983. That's the date of issuance because uh, it's the Feast of the Conversion of St. Paul. I don't know when they actually announced it. They might have announced it on a different date, you know, but the date attached to it is that date. But then the date the law is binding force was many months later. It was, it was uh, in November of that same year because, because they had to give the whole church throughout the world time to um, to learn what the code was and get ready to put it into effect. And that's when bishops started scrambling, and that's the year I was sent to study canon law because they, needed, they suddenly realized we need guys to figure out what's going on, right? Um, so, but in any case, it has to be promulgated. That's the important thing. Okay? It can't be a dead letter. How is it promulgated? This is important to know, especially nowadays, because you know we just had this uh, famous motu proprio, right, um, about the Latin mass, you know, um, and was it actually promulgated? You know, I mean, how do pastors even know about it? You know, uh, they read about it in the papers, you know, or, or in the, on the internet, whatever it was, but it has to be promulgated in, in the sense that it is communicated to uh, all of the bishops. And then they're given time to to, uh, to put it into effect. And it wasn't done with a motu proprio. It was just sent out, and I think they said, this is like right now, an effective immediately. You know? So there's a lot of confusion even about that. So um, uh, we're talking about whatever it is, a billion people or so in the church. We've got to get this right. It has to be a way, uh, a very clear way of promulgating laws. So Canon 8. Uh, universal ecclesiastical laws are promulgated how? This is important for you guys to know. Uh, if you really want to know um, how a law is promulgated, because you might need to know about it in your own work, it is promulgated by publication in the official Vatican commentary called the Acta Apostolicae Sedis, right? The Acta Apostolicae Sedis, right there in your um, in the code. Acts of the Apostolic See. This is the official place where you look to find uh, the laws of the church. The official commentary, Octa Apostolicae Sedis. So they're uh, universal, universal ecclesiastical laws for the whole uh, church are promulgated by publication in the official commentary, Octa Apostolicae Sedis, unless another manner of promulgation has been prescribed in particular cases. So unless they say that, this is how you do it in the Octa. They take force only after three months have elapsed from the date of that issue of the octa, um, unless they bind immediately from the very nature of the matter or the law itself has specifically and expressly established a shorter or longer suspensive period, the vacatio. Um, so normally, uh, it's say a law is, pub is promulgated today for the universal church, um, it would be published 
in the next edition of the Autosophia said it. So say that's October 1st, okay? I'm not sure, I forget what the dates are of promulgation. So it would be October, November, December, it would be January 1st that it would go into effect, right? Even though it's promulgated in September, it goes into effect three days, three months from the date of the issue of the Acta Apostolica Sedis in which it is published. Unless, NISI, right? You always have these NISI clauses. NISI, remember that means unless. Unless some other provision is made, right? Or they bind immediately from the very nature of the matter. It could be simply an answer to a question, what does this law mean? So it would be pretty clear from that moment. It's an interesting term they have for this suspensive period between promulgation and when the law goes into effect. It's easy to remember, it's called the vacatio. So the law goes on vacation. Vacatio. So the code itself took a nice long vacation from January 25th, 1983 till November of 1983. Vacatio, the suspensive period, right? So that's for universal laws published by the, promulgated by the Vatican. Particular laws in your own diocese are promulgated in the manner determined by the legislator, who is the bishop of the diocese, and begin to oblige a month after the date of promulgation unless the law itself establishes another time period. So for the universal law, it's three months after the date of that issue of the octo. But for particular laws in your own diocese, it's a month after it's promulgated, right? So say Bishop Caggiano in Bridgeport decides tomorrow he's going to promulgate a law requiring every, requiring that the St. Michael prayer be prayed after every mass, okay? That would go into effect one month from tomorrow. So that's the usual way in which particular laws in a particular diocese are promulgated, okay? Now, a very important principle of law that sometimes is violated, and we see it violated, well, let me get to this, but anyway, just in general, Canon 9, laws regard the future, not the past, unless they expressly provide for the past. So we've seen that already in penal law, right, in the church, that you don't, we have new penal law in the new code of Canon law. And in fact, that was just revised a few months ago, the whole book six of Canon law, which is all about penal law. So that only applies going forward. It doesn't apply retroactively, okay? So laws regard the future, not the past, unless they expressly provide for the past. A question that always comes up in pastoral practice is, is this invalid or merely illicit, right? All the time, people are doing things that are invalid or illicit. How do you know the difference, right? Canon 10 is very clear. Canon 10 says only those laws must be considered invalidating or disqualifying, which expressly established that an act is 
is null or that a person is unqualified, right? So um, invalidated or disqualified. So you have invalidity and, um, and illicitity, right? Uh, or validity and illicitity. difference between validity and laicity? What's what does validity mean? Valid. Yeah, I know. What does valid mean? <laughs> is it uh, true? True? As, as stands the test of time or what? It's, uh, it's effective. Pardon? Effective. Well, we can apply it easily to liturgical law. If, if I um, at mass today, uh, decided to, uh, I was kind of celebrating, but say I was saying a, a, a private mass, uh, and I took a few seminarians and tried to impress them. And uh, you can't impress seminarians, but, uh, and, and I, and I, um, so I took the, um, I took the bread and said, you know, uh, this, this is our body because we are one in Christ and this is our body, which we are giving up for each other. Would that be valid? Would that become the body of Christ? That's invalid. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. Invalid means it's null and void. No, right? Uh, invalid. Okay. It doesn't happen. Right. So um, if uh, uh, if you go to get ordained a deacon, you know, and um, the bishop uh, gets distracted and doesn't lay hands on you. So coming up in the line, and, uh, and his secretary wants to talk to him about the latest uh, sex abuse case, and he, he looks at you and says, "You know, go on." It doesn't lay hands on you, and so uh, your your ordination is invalid. It didn't happen. Okay. So the same with, with legal um, actions um, in, in the church. If something is invalid. It's null and void. Okay. Um, you know, a pastor might be in, appointed invalidly. So invalidating or disqualifying. So if, um, uh, well, really, if, if any one of you uh, were appointed to be pastor of a parish, it would be invalid because you're unqualified, right? Because you, you don't have holy orders, right? Um, so it disqualifying. Um, and the, the law itself must state that something is required for validity or required for somebody to be qualified to have um, an office. So he would say uh, to be a pastor, um, uh, a person must be a validly ordained priest. Say that, okay? Uh, for for the valid for validity, it would have, it would have that, you know, um, for a person to be qualified to be pastor, you would have to be a validly ordained priest. Um, so the, the law will state that, and, and very often you have to look at the law uh, to see, it, 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 because very often the law is saying you should do this, that, or the other thing, or this, that, or the other thing is done. But does it say it's done for validity? Uh, that's what you have to look for. If push comes to shove, right? Uh, because sometimes you have to prove the validity of something. Granted, it wasn't done the proper way, but was it at least valid? So you have to look for that. So again, the easiest way to look at this is liturgical law, which uh, 
code of Canada doesn't cover it, but I remember Monsignor Bill Smith, um, I forget where he was standing, in this room or another room, he said, if a priest begins mass without the sign of the cross, it's illicit. It's illicit because he disobeyed a law. The law says you begin with the sign of the cross, he disobeyed the law. If he, uh, if he changes the words of consecration, it's invalid. Then the mass didn't happen at all. See the difference? Okay, and it has to be stated as such, you know, in, in the law. Right? That such and such is required for validity. In the case of the priest that realized that he was baptized with the wrong formula, this happened recently, a couple of years, how did his uh, priesthood become validated? Well, they would have to go ahead and baptize him and, and ordain him really quickly. So he, yeah. he was already ordained and he was... You can't ordain somebody who's not... Who's, but, if, he, if, if his actual baptism was invalid... But he didn't realize this until years after his ordination. It doesn't matter. His baptism was invalid. His baptism was invalid. And, uh, the bare minimum you need for a valid ordination is a vir baptizatus, as it says, a, a baptized with man. You know? So that's a problem. <laughs> We've got all those confessions and so forth. But yeah, then, well, the news and all that. But the, uh, you know, in this case confessions, the, the Lord will take care of those people. Yeah, but in the case of the Eucharist, uh, what happened in the case of that? Right, because it's if he wasn't baptized, then he's he's not valid. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So same thing if, if he whatever marriages he witnessed would yeah. be invalid. Yeah. Now that would be it'd be easy enough to just um, we'll see this when we get to marriage. It'd be easy enough to um, uh, to fix those marriages retroactively. You know, it's it's what's called sanatio erotice, healing at the root. Just go back and give a dispensation from the law that applied and be okay, because that's ecclesiastical law. But um, but the, the masses that he said, you know, yeah. So um, so invalidating or disqualifying, the law has to say. Uh, Canon 11, guys, please understand this. Please understand this so you don't get sued. Okay? Please understand this. And it's not as simple as it looks. There's a lot of guys that messed up in this. Um, a lot of priests that messed up in this. Canon 11 refers to merely ecclesiastical laws. Okay, that's what we're talking. We're not talking about divine law here. We're talking about merely ecclesiastical laws. Merely ecclesiastical laws bind those who have been baptized in the Catholic Church or received into it, possess a sufficient use of reason, and unless the law expressly provides otherwise, have completed seven years of age. So, if um, if if we have a merely ecclesiastical law that we're going to get to, uh, it's a very important law. And I'll start now, uh, and then I'll keep repeating it, and I hope you'll get it. Uh, I know you'll get it by the end of the course. There's uh, a merely ecclesiastical law. It's an ecclesiastical law. It's not divine law that says that for validity, a Catholic must be married uh, in, in uh, a, ca a Catholic ceremony. Must follow the Catholic form of marriage for a marriage for a for a marriage of a Catholic to be uh, to be valid. Canon 1108. So you have the situation where you have two Lutherans who got married. Two Lutherans, not Catholics. Two Lutherans. They got married. They got divorced. And now one of them. Yeah, it's not really not funny. I mean, you know, Can he thinks everything's a joke. They'd have to get a 
civil divorce, correct? Well, yeah, I'm in a civil divorce, but that's, the eyes of God, that doesn't mean anything. That's just for civil effects, yeah. But in terms of- Marriage is valid. Correct. Who said that, John? John Williams. The lawyer. See, the lawyer gets it. Yeah. The marriage is valid, okay? Because ecclesiastical laws do not apply to non-Catholics. And I bring this up because this particular case, um, it's one of the few times I'll mention Bishop Sullivan, um, from, who's now Bishop of Camden. Uh, when he was Vicar General, um, we had a couple of cases close to each other at a time like this. And it's a situation where uh, uh, there was um, a visiting priest. I think he was from Sri Lanka, but I'm not sure. Let's say for argument's sake, he was from Sri Lanka. He was summer help in the parish. He was doing a great job, apparently. Uh, uh, he was, uh, apparently he was alone in the parish. The, uh, the pastor went on vacation, came back. Um, and while he was away, the, this priest had prepared people for marriage, right? So he said, well, you've got all your marriages ready. Here are the dates and you just have to do the rehearsal and, and the wedding and I've taken care of everything else. Fine. So, the day before one of these weddings, the priest does the rehearsal. And at the rehearsal, he finds out precisely what I just told you. That the, I forget whether it was the groom or the bride, probably the groom, I don't, I'm, I'm guessing the groom. The groom, non-Catholic, married before to a non-Catholic. And father um, from Sri Lanka had said, well, well, that's, that's uh, they're not Catholic, so they don't need an annulment or anything like that, so you're good to go. And he prepared them for marriage. Uh, and then the, 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 the pastor finds out the night before that the groom, I think it was a groom, is in another valid marriage. And he, you know, and now we're now we're breaking divine law to allow him to marry um, to marry a Catholic, because and the the priest from Sri Lanka was thinking of Canon 1108 probably that for validity a Catholic is required to marry. Um, following a Catholic uh, Catholic ritual, uh, um, the Catholic, using the Catholic form of marriage, that's for Catholics, and it's an ecclesiastical law that applies to Catholics. So, if a Catholic marries, if we had the other other case, if a Catholic uh, had married uh, a non-Catholic. Outside the church, no dispensation, whatever you know, whatever it was. Catholic goes off to city hall, marries a non-Catholic. That's invalid, according to Canon 1108, because there's an ecclesiastical law that says the Catholic must marry, um, in, in, according to the Catholic form of marriage. That's invalid. Then he goes, and now he wants to marry a Catholic in the Catholic Church. Well, there are some things that, that there is some paperwork that needs to be taken care of, but if push comes to shove, that marriage is still valid. Because the, pre, the first marriage was invalid because the Catholic was bound by ecclesiastical law. But non-Catholics are not bound by ecclesiastical law. So no. you have the same scenario. Somebody who was married before now wants to marry a Catholic. And if it was, if it was a Catholic married before and didn't get any kind of dispensation or anything like that, went to a justice of the peace, that marriage is invalid. That, that Catholic uh, can marry the non-Catholic. He still needs some paperwork, but basically it's all right. Um, but the other case where you have a non-Catholic who married a non-Catholic, that's valid. That's valid. A Catholic, a non-Catholic marrying a non-Catholic uh, in a non-Catholic ceremony is perfectly valid. It's divine law. 
um, they're not bound by ecclesiastical law. They're not bound by Canon 1108. Therefore, that first marriage is valid, and therefore you can't do the, this marriage now, or the person is divorced and now wants to marry a Catholic. You can't, because that person is validly married to the, the first spouse. So now two Protestant, they, a couple that were married in their previous Protestant church, now they want to convert to Catholic. Would that marriage be valid, or do they sure, have to yeah, it's already valid. So, to, so they don't have to perform another marriage no, no, in the Catholic Church. Yeah, we're gonna get into that later. But uh, I want you to understand this this basic basic distinction um, about, about ecclesiastical law. We're not talking about divine law, and the, and the the canon itself says merely ecclesiastical laws. Uh, um, to emphasize the fact, these are only human laws, only man-made laws. They're not divine laws. They're merely ecclesiastical laws. It's, it's almost using a a dismissive um, uh, term to describe merely human laws. So, so, so basically, what you're saying is, whether you get married in a church as a valid Catholic or not, marriage is a divine law, right? Pardon? If you marriage, because if a if a if a man and woman, whether they get married in the Catholic Church or they're not Catholic, but if they legally get married, is that that's considered divine law? That's divine law. Yeah, yeah. So, so we're gonna get into all that. So when they're trying to Re redefine marriage they're going against god's word oh that's true yeah oh, yeah, that, yeah yeah we'll get when we get when we get to marriage let's not get into marriage now because we we'll, yeah we're going to get to that yeah um it's defined in canon law as a union between a man and a woman among other things the father we had a question over here first yeah. just a quick question father then getting back to your example of the two lutherans who were previously married as lutherans yeah. and, and how do you remedy that well, we're going to get into that, all right, in, in, in uh, later in the course. They might be able to get an annulment, maybe. Maybe. Um, but Canon 11 uses the word, uh, it says the, the baptizati, the baptizer, tenentor, are held by legibus mere ecclesiastices, by, by merely ecclesiastical laws. Just, just, they're merely ecclesiastical. They're not divine. Merely ecclesiastical. It's almost a dismissive uh, term that it uses to emphasize the fact that um, there's a radical, radical distinction between divine law and um, and human law in the code. Um, and merely merely ecclesiastical laws, merely human laws in the code, do not apply to non-Catholics. Okay, they do not apply to non-Catholics. I know this seems obvious. But I'm saying this to you based on experience, because uh, when that happened, oh, so I'll, I'll give you the rest of the story. So the uh, the pastor finds out at the at the uh, rehearsal the night before, or the afternoon before, I think it was, that the the um, one of the parties, I think the groom, is validly married, a non-Catholic validly married to somebody else, and he realizes that's divine law, you know, um, and. Uh, you know, this priest from Sri Lanka was, was mistaken in applying a, a, an ecclesiastical law to non-Catholics and, and declaring the first marriage invalid. The first marriage is valid. So, so now he's violating divine law. What to do? So he called the tribunal. And we said, we got a problem. And, and then every, every, the whole, all of 1011 First Avenue kind of stopped at that point. Well, at least it tribunal and the chancery office. Uh, this poor priest, we realized what was going to happen to this poor priest, and it wasn't his fault, you know. 
the priests who had done this had fled the country, who had not fled the country, went back to wherever he came from. So what to do? So he called us, and we all discussed it. We asked every possible detail that you could think of that might somehow alter it. And the answer was clear. This guy is in a valid previous marriage. He cannot get married. So then we had to notify the vicar general, and it was Bishop Sullivan at the time. Bishop Sullivan was known for having kind of a short fuse. He was not happy. And so we fully backed him up because it wasn't his fault. But he had to tell the couple the night before the wedding, you can't get married tomorrow. And I don't know how many guests were invited and booked the hall and everything else. So you can imagine, you know, and I don't know if there was a lawsuit or what happened, but it was a pretty awful situation. Then the same damn thing, sorry, happened a few weeks later. And this time, the priest who had made that mistake was somebody who had graduated from this institution. He was a priest of the Archdiocese of New York. And he made the same mistake. He wasn't one of your students, was he? No, it was before I came here. Okay, okay. Before I came, not my fault. Before I came here. But he made the same mistake. He ignored Canon 11 and said, oh, you're a non-Catholic, married to a non-Catholic before. You don't need an annulment. That's just for Catholics. And again, he was violating divine law and invalidly applying an ecclesiastical law to a non-Catholic. So again, the same thing happens. Somebody discovers this like the day before the wedding or something like that. They have to call off the wedding. And at that point, I'm told, I wasn't there, but I was told by others that Bishop Sullivan had a bit of a meltdown. And then I wasn't there, but I could imagine him banging his fist on the desk and saying, who the hell is teaching them Canon Y? And I can tell you, it wasn't the fault of my predecessor. I think it was Father Michael Martini then, or it might have been Senior Judge Andrico before him. Because I've had guys who will get every, they'll ace their exams. And they'll tell you everything beautifully about what has to be done for an annulment, for weddings, everything. They know it all. Then we get complaints about them in the parish. They don't know what they're doing when it comes to weddings. I don't know. We try, but it happens. But anyway, please understand this, okay? Merely ecclesiastical laws bind those who have been baptized in the Catholic Church or received into it. So someone who is coming to the fullness of the faith convert. Also, they need to possess the sufficient use of reason. All right, that helps. That's necessary for validity. And unless the law expressly provides otherwise, they've completed seven years of age. So all of that. Yes. What would have remedied that particular situation that you just described? They said, okay, you can't get married. How could that have gotten fixed? Well, I'm afraid, I didn't follow up on it, but my guess is at the last minute, they found some Protestant minister, they went to a justice of the peace, they did whatever, and they married invalidly. Because you can do that in other denominations. You have a divorce from a civil attorney or from a civil judge, fine. You can get married in our church, not in the Catholic Church, but in other churches. So my guess is they were validly married civilly, but of course they were living in sin. Because 
he's still he was still married to someone else. Right? And there was no annulment. There was no proof that the mar- that marriage was invalid. He was married to someone else. Now, in a case like that, what you would do is you follow up, as you normally do uh, for somebody who's preparing for marriage who has been married before. You follow up and see if there's a possibility of an annulment or something else like that. And so you, you answered my question. In order to fix it, to make it a valid Catholic marriage, they would have had to have gotten, he would have had to have gotten an annulment. An annulment or something else. And we're going to see all these different possibilities when we get to that part of the course. Yeah. But you can't always get an annulment. An annulment itself is a, is a misnomer because we can't nullify a marriage that is valid to begin with. And a, a so-called annulment is a, is a finding by a court that a marriage was invalid from the get-go. <clears throat> Uh, we can't make a valid marriage invalid. You know? um, so um, not everybody can get an annulment. So it, it could um, maybe maybe they didn't get the annulment. You know? um, so and you can see. So now we're talking about these people's salvation. You know, the priest had led them down the primrose path, uh, led them to believe that you can, uh, contrary to divine law, you can divorce your wife and marry another. Um, and, and now maybe that marriage really was valid. There's no way of, of getting out of it, as, as we would say, and, uh, and so now the person is living in adultery. You know? So these are serious matters. You are know, talking about the salvation of souls here. Okay? So please get this, merely ecclesiastical laws. We're going we're gonna to repeat this. We're going to get into this, uh, uh, especially when we get to the marriage part of the course. Um, and in 12, uh, th- this can be kind of confusing. I'll, I'll mention it now, uh, and then maybe we'll take a break. Um, but it's important to get this as well. Universal laws bind everywhere all those for whom they were issued. Now, all who are actually present in a certain territory, however, are exempted um, from universal laws which are not enforced in that territory. And laws established for a particular territory bind those for whom they were issued, as well as those who have a domicile or quasi-domicile there and who at the same time are actually residing there, without prejudice to the prescript of Canon 13. So um, uh, universal laws bind everywhere all those for whom they were issued. So it's a law for the whole world that on Fridays and Lent, you must abstain from meat if you're over a certain age, right? Um, However, this is a classic case. Uh, however, the patron saint of the Archdiocese of New York is St. Patrick. The Feast of St. Patrick is March 17th, which comes during Lent. Once in a while, March 17th comes on a Friday in Lent. What pastoral decision is the Archbishop of New York going to make in the face of all of this revelry? <laughs> he's, already, he's already done it. Yeah, it's, 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 it's actually become a custom. So the the, uh, the Archbishop of New York typically dispenses everyone from that universal law, right? So if you're in the Archdiocese of New York uh, on a Friday uh, on Friday March 17th, um, you you are typically dispensed from uh, the law requiring you to abstain from meat, so you can have your corned beef. Right? Um, and it, it also binds um, anyone who happens to be visiting New York on that day because people are coming to New York. Really? Yeah, that's what it says. All who are actually present in a certain territory. Oh, okay. Right? So uh, people are coming to New York from all over for the St. Patrick's Day Parade and to hit all the bars and so on and so forth. <laughs> so, so they're exempted as well, right? Um, 
But it doesn't dispense of getting drunk. No, it does not. <laughs> so, and, and then it says, um, so those are universal laws. Then you have laws established for a particular territory. So there's a, a law established, say, for, as I mentioned before, say, Bishop Caggiano decides to establish a law for the diocese of, of, um, of Bridgeport that um, at the end of every Mass, everyone has to say the St. Michael prayer. The priest has to lead the St. Michael prayer. So that's a, uh, a law established for a particular territory. So it binds those for whom they were issued, so all the priests, as well as those who have a domicile or quasi-domicile there and who, who are actually at the same time residing there. Okay. Um, and let's see, all right, it's 8.15. We'll get into all this domicile, quasi-domicile, and all the rest. Um, and we even have, um, I mentioned this before, didn't I? We even, even have this uh, a visual aid about what a quasi-domicile is right over here. I mentioned that to you, didn't I? No. Oh, I will. Okay. Good. So, <coughs> can we make it like 10 minutes because we lost a lot of time at the beginning? Is that, mm-hmm. is that enough time? Yeah. So, like 25 after? Yeah. 20, 26 good. after? Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay, so um, so that's a classic example of a universal law <coughs> that can be dispensed. Again, these are ecclesiastical laws. It's not divine law, you know, fasting uh, or standing for me rather on, on Fridays in Lent. Um, and um, though, if, if there's an exemption in a particular territory, and typically it would be in New York, you know, we have this dispensation granted by the Archbishop of New York on on uh, St. Patrick's Day when it's on a Friday, uh, then um, anyone who's actually in the territory is exempted from, um, from, from that law. So anyone who's in the ter- territory is exempted from universal laws which are not enforced in that territory. Now, if you have local laws, uh, so the bishop of a diocese has a local law, right, um, just for that diocese. Um, it says laws established for a particular territory bind those for whom they were issued, uh, as well as everyone else who has a domicile or quasi-domicile there, and who at the time are actually residing there, um, without prejudice to the prescripts of Canon 13. So we have to um, get some definitions here. So if you um, mark Canon 12 and then turn to uh, Canon 100. And in 100, these are some definitions you need to know. Uh, this is going to come up in your pastoral work all the time. And in 100, a person is said to be a resident in Inquila, in the place where the person has a domicile, a temporary resident. Um, Thank you. Yeah. A better way to do this is before we go to can, uh, Canon 100, let's go to Canon um, 102 first. Because it's to figure out what a domicile and quasi domicile are. So, Canon 102. Um, domicile is acquired by that residence within the territory of a certain parish 
for release of a diocese, which either is joined with the intention of remaining there permanently unless called away or has been in fact protracted for five complete, complete years. Right? So uh, a domicile uh, basically is where, where you live. If you, if you move to a new house and you intend just to live there, this is where I'm going to live now. You know, no time limit necessarily set. Right? So um, then that's your domicile, right? place where you live. Um, if you uh, move to a place, you don't intend to stay there, but you end up liking it so much or whatever that you stay there for five years, then that also is your domicile, okay? So either you just move there with the intention of just staying there, or you're, you're there and you've been there for five years, and well, now it's your domicile, okay? That's a, that's a domicile. Um, now, uh, that's paragraph one of Canon 102. Paragraph two of Canon 102 speaks about a quasi-domicile. Um, a quasi-domicile is acquired by residents within the territory of a certain parish release of a diocese, which either is joined with the intention of remaining um, there for at least three months, unless called away or has in fact been protracted for three months. So domicile, intending to just remain there, or in fact you've remained there for five years. Right. Um, <clears throat> uh, right. So uh, either, either you're just there, you're intending to remain there, or it's been five years. Quasi-domicile, um, you move to a place and tend to be there for at least three months. Or if you move to a place you didn't have intended to stay so long, but in fact you stay there for three months. So three months is the number for quasi-domicile. So in a, a domicile, number three, a domicile or quasi-domicile within the territory of a parish is called parochial. So within the territory of a diocese, even though not within a parish, it's diocesan. So this will come up again, uh, surprise, surprise, in marriage law. A uh, person comes to you, uh, wants to get married. Okay. Where does that person have a domicile? Does that person have a domicile in your parish? Or does the person have at least a quasi-domicile in your parish? They have, if, they have a dom if they don't have a domicile or quasi-domicile in your parish, you might, we'll see the laws later, you might have to get permission from a parish where they do have a domicile or quasi-domicile. We'll, we'll get into all that later. So just to know now what a domicile is and what a quasi-domicile is. Right? And a domicile or quasi-domicile refers to a particular parish or at least a particular diocese. So, um, so we have, um, I was teaching this to uh, the class that was just ordained actually. They were just ordained last, uh, last May mostly. Um, and when I was going over this with them in first theology, they were enthralled by the concept of domicile and quasi-domicile. They thought this was just like magic, you know, this is wonderful. So they wanted to, to establish quasi-domicile day. They figured out the day when they would actually have a quasi-domicile here, you know. And actually, if you want to be technical, they, they had a quasi-domicile as soon as they moved here because they intended to stay here for at least three months. But be that as it may, they decided to set a date three months after they entered. And that was the date uh, when, when they... Uh, receive their quasi-domicile. They wanted to have a celebration of that day. They wanted a proper canonical decree. That's it, <laughs> over there. So it was, a, and you, can re, you can read it later in your leisure, but it was, it's a joke, but it was a, a very um, florid,
canonical language, you know, where, um, you know, well, I'm not going to get into the whole thing, but, you know, whereas and wherefore, and take into consideration uh, canons, blah, 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 and therefore we hereby de declare and define and so forth uh, that uh, whatever the state is, is quasi domicile day, uh, with all the rights and responsibilities pertaining thereunto, et cetera, et cetera, you know, signed by, uh, given at, uh, I think it says given at um, um, St. Joseph's Seminary on this whatever day it was of the year, whatever the day it was, signed by um, Senior Peter Vicari, and then we even had a notary, um, who was, uh, uh, I think it was Danielle, who uh, signed it. She, she actually technically is an ecclesiastical notary, because when I first uh, came here a number of years ago, uh, we had... Um, we had an, an interdiocesan appeals court for the for the whole state of New York. Every diocese in New York uh, could appeal their their uh, marriage cases to this appeals court, and the headquarters was here. So they, they you know I was here, so they had me in charge of that. And you need on a court you need among other things notaries. So she and Mary Brogley were actually signing the um, all of the documents for the uh, uh, for the tribunal back in those days. Anyway, so a little joke in the wall to get the point. Across that um, there's such a thing as a domicile and a quasi-domicile. So you get the idea? Those are? Okay. Now, um, if that's canon, um, oh, oh, what is that, 102, um, and if you go back to canon 100, a person is said to be a resident in Kola, resident in Kola, Person is a resident and incola in the place where the person has a domicile. Person is a resident, incola. Okay, I hope you can read that. Incola, I-N-C-O-L-A, resident. A temporary resident or an advin. I didn't write advin. Uh, I didn't write advin. Person is a is a temporary resident or an advina in a place where the person has a quasi domicile. A traveler, a peregrinus, right? Um, if the person is outside the place of the domicile or quasi domicile, which is still retained, and a transient, a vagus, very bad, vagus. If the person does not have the domicile or quasi domicile anywhere, okay? Right? You see the, the distinction. So, so the person is a resident. Uh, a temporary resident, depending whether it's domicile or quasi-domicile. Person is a peregrinus. This comes up an awful lot in Canada law. Person is a traveler. Person is outside of the place where, the, where he lives. You know, doesn't have a place where he's staying. Is not, you know, he doesn't have a domicile or quasi-domicile. It happens all the time, right? So um, if, you, uh, if you fly to, to, to Dallas, uh, this year, um, you, are, you are a peregrinus. You are a traveler. You, you don't have a... Uh, domicile or quasi-domicile. Um, and a person is a transient or a vagus, 
know that term, vadis, uh, if the person does not have the domicile or quasi-domicile anywhere. The only, the only Latin term you really need to know here is, is vadis, because that's uh, that comes up a lot of time. But just know these distinctions, uh, uh, resident, uh, temporary resident, and a traveler. But a, a transient, a vagus, person has no um, domicile or quasi-domicile anywhere. Beware the vagus, okay? um, because these people tend to uh, um, slip, slip through the cracks in canon law. You know? um, and uh, and there, there are problems that, that, that kind of ensue. Uh, and we'll, we'll see later when we get to marriage law, among other things. So, um, so anyway, these are some uh, important... Uh, uh, terms you need to be aware of, and um, and finally, how you lose domicile, Canon 106. Um, domicile and quasi-domicile are lost by departure from a place with the intention of not returning. Right? Um, without, yeah, just don't worry about the rest of it. So um, that, that's simple enough, right? You just leave the place, I'm not coming back. That's it. You lose your Domicile, quasi domicile. Okay, so beware of those terms. You need, you need those so you can understand other things. Okay. So, going now, applying those terms down to Canon 13, uh, particular laws are not presumed to be personal but territorial unless it is otherwise evident. Okay, so uh, uh, we're talking about particular laws, laws for a particular diocese typically. Um, they are they are uh, presumed to be territorial. They apply to people in the territory, not not to persons outside the territory. So, um, what about travelers? Again, travelers. A peregrinus is a traveler. Peregrini, uh, plural. Travelers are not bound. Uh, if you're outside of your of the place where you have a domicile or quasi domicile, travelers are not bound by the particular laws of their own territory as long as they are absent from it unless either the transgression of those laws causes harm in their own territory or the laws are personal. So you have a law that requires uh, a priest to say Hail Mary uh, or whatever, say St. Michael's Prayer after every Mass in, in your diocese. You leave the diocese, you're saying Mass elsewhere, you're not bound by that law. Right? That law applies only in that diocese, you're not in the diocese, you're a traveler elsewhere. Okay? Um, you're also not bound by the laws of the territory in which you are present. They're not bound, travelers are not bound, number two, by the laws of the territory in which they are present, with the exception of those laws which provide for public um, order, which determine the uh, formalities of acts, or which regard immovable goods located in the territory. And finally, uh, transients, the vagi, uh, or vagus, singular, Transients are bound by both universal and particular laws, which are enforced in the place where they are actually present. Um, so um, you have um, you have a good example that is given uh, in the in the Green Commentary on page 65, the second column, the middle of the first, or actually the second sentence of the first paragraph. Um, if a particular Territory has an exemption from a universal law, um, anyone present in the territory is exempt from that law, not only those with domicile and quasi domicile, but also travelers, right? So um, uh, we saw that already in the case of uh, uh, um, St. Patrick's Day on, fr on Friday. Um, 
may give an example of holy days of obligation. Right? Um, this has happened to me, actually. Uh, there's uh, a general law, universal law, that says, uh, that establishes certain holy days of obligation. But as you probably know, in different countries, um, pardon? Yeah, they have uh, gotten rid of some of them. Uh, there was a big move that was horrible. When I was studying canon law, uh, my first go-round in Catholic University, there was a big move uh, in the, uh, then the NCCB, now the USCCB, to get rid of holy days. We don't want these holy days. You know, we don't want to be special. We don't want to be different from the rest of, you know, sort of this vaguely Protestant culture in the United States. You know, get rid of holy days. Very convenient. You know, so there's a big move to get rid of them. And Cardinal O'Connor uh, really fought that. You know? And you see that in the Archdiocese of New York and in, and in some other dioceses that came under his influence or, or just for whatever reason, um, on the Feast of the Ascension. So the Feast of the Ascension comes on Ascension Thursday. That's that's uh, that's universal law, uh, you know, 40 days after Easter. But in the United States, oh, you know, we can't we can't be bothered to, you know, we can't ask people to go to mass on a Thursday. Oh, oh, that's terrible. We have to get rid of it. So. For most of the country, they got rid of that obligation. So now when it says 40 days after Easter, there was dissension. No, no, it's, it's, it's more like 40, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So it's more like 43, you know, whatever. You kind of lose it, you know. Um, they held the line in New York. <clears throat> Two years in a row, I was down in Lake Charles, Louisiana. I told you about, you know, I was, I was the, did I tell you about that? Oh, um, as, as an aside, I, um, uh, it happened while I was here. I got a call one day from Cardinal Dolan at like 6:30 in the morning. Um, I thought I was in trouble, <laughs> and he, but he was asking for a favor. Um, he had a um, he, he had a, a bishop friend who had been um, a year, I think, behind him or ahead of him. I think I forget which. In the North American College where they had gone for the seminary. And anyway, this, the bishop of Lake Charles, Louisiana, a very, very uh, fine, fine guy um, by the name of Bishop Glenn Provo, he lost his judicial vicar, the guy in charge of the tribunal. Now, this is, I'm getting kind of complicated with this, but it was a, a weird story. Uh, tribunals deal most of the time with marriage cases. And, you know, once you start working in the tribunal, you don't want to get married <laughs> because, because you see everything can go wrong. Well, this guy, he was the head of the tribunal. He left the tribunal to get married. And I thought, gee, didn't he read the cases in front of him? <laughs> anyway, so and he was a very bright guy. Um, and the bishop depended heavily on him for a lot of things. And now he had the rug pulled out from under him. What to do? You know, um, it's a small diocese. He didn't have anybody he could put in as judicial vicar. So he called his, I think it's his classmate, Cardinal Raymond Burke. Uh, yep. Probably not who he is was the uh, prefect of the apostolic signatura. So he was even a big shot back in, in the day, you know, until Pope Francis came and didn't like it. Anyway, so he said, what am I going to do? He said, oh, you have to call Bill Elder. So because I, he knew me and I had um, been, um, I had worked with the signatura in reforming the tribunal in the Archdiocese of New York. We had a big reform to get into later in the course. So, um, uh, uh, so Cardinal Burke recommended me. So I get this call. So he calls uh, Cardinal Dolan. And Cardinal Dolan, oh, anything for a fellow bishop. So he calls me, and he asks me first 
if I would move down to Lake Charles, Louisiana for like a year to take charge of things. <coughs> and my, my sister had cancer at the time, and I said, well, if you really want me to, blah, blah, blah. but anyway, I worked it out so that I was able to commute. So I have all these frequent flyer miles that I have to do something about because they're going to expire because of COVID. But I commuted back and forth to Lake Charles, Louisiana every couple of months, every two or three months. Um, and um, so I was, I was down there two years in a row in, uh, in May uh, and on, the, on the Feast of the Ascension. The Feast of the Ascension in the Archdiocese of New York is on a Thursday. The uh, Feast of the Ascension in Lake Charles, as in most of the country, is on a Sunday. So I was down in Lake Charles, and I realized that if I, and, uh, if I were to say Mass, uh, and as a matter of fact, uh, this one I don't know if it's both both years, but at least the one year, um, I was actually on as a celebrant for the the daily mass in the cathedral on the feast in New York of the Ascension. But down there it was Thursday of the what is it, the fifth week, sixth week of Easter, sixth week of Easter, I guess. Um, so what to do, you know? I realized if I were to say the mass that was being said in most of the country, I would, and then get back to New York. I would miss the Ascension because the rest of the country the following Sunday would be Ascension, but I would be back in New York on the following Sunday, and it was not Ascension because we already had Ascension. So what to do? Um, and anyway, I talked I talked to the rector of the cathedral he, who, who said, oh, I think the people will be edified if you celebrate the Ascension. And so I, I got out of it that way. I didn't want to miss the Ascension, you know. So um, but that's a problem, you know. Um, so the example they use here, uh, on page 65, that first footnote, a common example is Holy Days of Obligation. Although there may be an obligation to attend Mass in one's own country on a certain feast, one is exempt from visiting a country that does not observe the feast as a day of obligation. So, I mean, technically, I would have been exempt from the law, from the universal law uh, about going to Mass on the Feast of the Ascension because it was not in effect in Lake Charles. But I didn't want to miss the Ascension because I love the Ascension. So, anyway. uh, one year, I was when I was studying in Rome, same thing happened. Uh, in back then, I don't know what the case is now, but back then, in Vatican City, they had all obviously they would have all the holy days of obligation observed on their proper dates. So Ascension, Ascension Thursday. I lived in the Casa Santa Maria, which is in Rome, but outside of Vatican City. But it's Vatican owned. You know, and it's run by the bishops of, of the United States, and it's considered Vatican territory. But it's in Rome, so it's not in the Vatican. And a number of the guys who lived at the cause, we, uh, everybody was studying canon law back then. We had like 100 guys living there. And some of the guys were going out on Sundays to help out in parishes in Rome and even outside of Rome. What to do? You know, what we... What mass were we going to celebrate in the casa on uh, on on that on, on that Sunday? And, and, what, and were, we, were we going to celebrate the Ascension Thursday on Thursday, or celebrate it on the following Sunday? So the only way we could deal with it was, was to take a vote, <laughs> you know, because the law was so unclear about what to do, you know. And we voted to observe Ascension Thursday on Ascension Thursday. So anyway, so anyway, so these universal laws don't apply to a traveler 
was in a place where uh, they're not infected. This is another variation on the uh, St. Patrick's on a, uh, on, a, on a Friday theme. Um, okay, um, but then these particular laws, um, again, um, they, uh, they don't bind when you're absent from the territory. Uh, and then, um, and also if, if you're a traveler, you're not bound by the laws of the territory in which they are present, with the exception of those laws which provide for public order. Um, okay, I think that's about as clear as it can get, right? Yeah, well, right? for me. Um, let's not worry about uh, kind of 14 doubts of law and fact. Although, um, just as a, as a um, item of interest, a doubt of law is called a dubium. The plural of dubium is dubia. You may have heard about the dubia that were the question, the questions, the doubts, and you present, um, canonically, you present doubts to the authority in Rome who could resolve the doubt. So the um, several cardinals, including Cardinal Burke, uh, had these dubia uh, several years ago about some of the statements of the Holy Father, uh, and they just needed clarification. So they presented to him uh, several dubia, and he got angry and refused to, to meet with him. You've, you've heard of that. Dubia. Yeah, ask about the dubia cardinals. You know, so. But a dubium legis is a doubt of law. What does the law mean? You know, it, it's not clear, right? So, um, um, so what it says is um, the law is not obliged, and there's doubt about the law. But don't um, don't worry about canon 14. It's, it's it's some. When you get to that point, you have to call a canon lawyer. However, Canon 15 is important. Ignorance and error. Ignorance or error about invalidating or disqualifying laws does not impede their effect unless it is expressly established otherwise. Ignorance or error about a law, a penalty, a fact concerning uh, oneself or a notorious fact concerning another is not presumed. It is presumed about a fact concerning another which is not notorious to the country's proven. You don't have to know all this, but. Um, just know, Canon 15, number one, ignorance or error about invalidating or disqualifying laws does not impede their effect unless it is expressly established otherwise. Okay. So if a bishop doesn't know that you you have to have a validly ordained priest as a pastor, and he appoints Sister Mary, whoever, as a pastor, um, he's ignorant, but it's still invalid. She's still disqualified. Right? So ignorance and error. Um, don't worry about official interpretation of law. I mean, it's just it's just common common sense. You can skip you can skip Canon 16. Um, canon 17, uh, you can skip also. But just to just to mention it, um, when you're trying to figure out what ecclesiastical laws mean, you kind of look at the you look at the meaning of the words. Um, and if you still have any doubt, you, you go to uh, things like it um, in, in kind of parallel places. Um, uh, and, and, and if 
and ultimately you, you, you want to seek the mind of the legislator. What did, what did the person who uh, promulgated this law really intend by this law? You know, but don't worry about Canon 17. Um, Canon 18, very important. Canon 18 is very important. Um, laws which establish a penalty restrict the free exercise of rights or contain an exception from the law are subject to strict interpretation. Right? So if there is a law that says there is a, a penalty of excommunication if you have an abortion, right? well, you have to interpret that law strictly. Uh, and the law says the person has to be aware of the penalty, the person has, has to intend to commit the crime, and all the rest. Okay? You can't just apply it because some, some frightened girl is, is forced by her parents to go to an abortion clinic. Might apply to the parents, but it wouldn't apply to the girl. Right? So um, uh, they're interpreted strictly. Okay? And obviously, anything that restricts people's rights, you, you should interpret strictly. Right? Um, okay, so be aware of that. Also, if it contains an exception to the law, but mainly penalties and restrictions of rights have to be interpreted strictly. Um, don't worry about Canon 19. Um, Don't worry about Canon 20. Um, these are all unprotected. Don't worry about Canon 21. Um, Canon 22, I just noticed, noted in passing, you don't have to know it, but civil laws to which the law of the church yields are to be observed in canon law with the same effects, insofar as they're not contrary to divine law, unless canon law provides otherwise. Sometimes it would take uh, civil laws like... Um, Oh, adoption, you know, um, uh, for so someone to be recognized as adopted in canon law, you, 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 uh, follow, you follow civil law, but you don't have to worry about canon 22. Um, all right, so that's that general introduction to ecclesiastical laws. Uh, now, Title II, custom. We have these um, six canons on custom. And this is kind of important because it gets confusing at times. Canon 23 says that only that custom introduced by a community of the faithful and approved by the legislator according to the norm of the following canons has the force of law. All right, so it has to be introduced by a community of the faithful and the legislator has, uh, usually the bishop of the diocese, has to approve it. Um, canon 24, no custom which is contrary to divine law can obtain the force of law. Okay, you, you, you know, I mean, Sometimes, again, we can't see the forest from the trees. This should be obvious, but for some it's not. No custom which is contrary to divine law can obtain the force of law. Nothing which is contrary to divine law can obtain the force of law. Whether it's custom or ecclesiastical law or whatever. Right? Um, uh, don't worry about number two there. It's too technical. Um, and in 25, no custom obtains the force of law unless it has been observed with the intention of introducing a law by a community capable of use of receiving law. Um, and I don't worry about that. <laughs> it's good. Um, uh, Canon 26, uh, just a note about time. Unless the competent legislator has specifically approved it, a custom contrary to the canon law now in force or one beyond the canonical law 
obtains the force of law only if it has been legitimately observed for 30 continuous complete years. Um, just to note that 30-year custom, sometimes you hear something about a 30-year custom. That's all I want you to know. Just note that sometimes that can have the force of law. But I'm not going to expect you to know this. Canon 27, custom is the best interpreter of laws. Um, which makes sense, you know, um, but we'll leave it at that. Um, <clears throat> I can skip 20, Canon 28. Yeah. Uh, these things get a little bit too technical, so um, for our purposes. Know that custom is the best interpreter of law. Um, okay, we'll leave it at that. Now we'll get into these things called uh, Title III, beginning uh, Canon 20 with 29. General decrees and instructions. Um, again, it's important to know what these things are. General decrees by which a competent legislator issues common precepts for a community capable of receiving laws are laws properly speaking and are governed by the prescripts of the canons on laws. Um, so, you know, St. Luke's Gospel, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that everyone should, uh, should, should um, uh, register with the census so they could be taxed, right? So um, a general decree, it's a law, it's a law, right? Um, so it's a competent legislator issues a general decree. Um, <clears throat> just for a moment, let's go to Canon 135, which speaks about the different powers of governance. We'll get into this again later, but just so you know, power of governance is divided into three parts. Uh, for any government, it just makes sense, and certainly in the church. The power of governance is distinguishes legislative, executive, and judicial. Uh, we won't get into this in detail now, but legislative power uh, belongs to the one who can pass laws, and in the church, legislative power belongs to the Pope, the Holy See, and belongs to the Bishop of the Diocese. So in his own diocese, the only person who has legislative power, the only person who can, can pass laws in his own diocese is, a, is the bishop of the diocese. All right, The presbyteral council, the priest council, cannot pass laws for the diocese. Right? Um, and all these other bodies cannot pass laws for the diocese. The vicar general cannot pass laws for the diocese. Only the bishop, he's the only legislator in the diocese. Okay? So you have legislative, you have uh, judicial power, uh, which is just what it says, uh, the, the, uh, the power to, um, uh, to, to judge situations. That also belongs to the bishop of the diocese, but he can delegate it. And he typically does to the judicial vicar and to the judges of the tribunal. So legislative, judicial, and finally, um, executive power, which is the power to, um, uh, to put laws into effect. So the, the vicar general has executive power. He's charged with putting laws into effect, but he does not have legislative power. He cannot pass laws. Do you see the distinction? Okay. So a person with executive power 
particularly the Vicar General and others, they're the ones charged with implementing laws that are passed by the Bishop of the Diocese. So Canon 30, a person who possesses only executive power is not able to issue the general decree mentioned in Canon 29. Only the Bishop of the Diocese can do that normally. Okay. You can skip Canon 31. You can skip Canon 32, really. And you can skip Canon 33. They're obviously going to come out. And Canon 34. These are different types of decrees, general executory decrees, and you have instructions to clarify decrees. But it's getting a little too technical here, so you don't have to worry about those. Just general executory decrees can be passed by the competent legislator, the person who can pass laws. And they are basically the same as laws. That's what general executory decrees are. You with me? Good. Okay. Singular administrative acts. These would be for particular situations. So a general executory decree would be typically for a whole diocese. Then you have a singular administrative act that could also be a decree. That would be for a particular parish, a particular person, whatever it might be. So a general executory decree versus a singular administrative act. You see the general difference between the two? Singular administrative acts consist of decrees. We've seen that already, but this would be for a singular situation. A precept or a rescript. Generally speaking, precept bad, rescript good. And these are issued by one who possesses executive power. So a vicar general can issue a singular decree. Basically a decision in some situation, whatever it might be. So a decree is kind of the general term. And we're going to get into all these in just a bit. A singular decree we'll see in Canon 48, we'll get to it in a moment. It's an administrative act issued by an executive authority in which a decision is given or provisions made of a particular case. So that's a singular decree. So we have singular decrees, we have precepts and rescripts. A precept is telling somebody, you've been bad, you better get your act together. So a bishop might issue a precept to a priest saying, you were reminded that you're not allowed to have underage children in your room in the rectory. If you do it again, you're going to be removed. So it's a precept. And a rescript is a writing back. And a rescript is a happy thing. A rescript is something you want. So if you are asking for a dispensation for somebody from a law, say the law we mentioned earlier about a Catholic marrying an unbaptized person, you send a petition 
for a dispensation from the law, and you get a rescript back, all right? A rescript, a writing back, you get back what you asked for, you know? A papal blessing is a rescript. You petition for the papal blessing, you get a rescript back, which is a papal blessing. So a rescript is something you want. But we'll go into these in a bit of detail right now. Just a general principle, skip Canon 36, Canon 37. Always a general principle in law, and certainly in canon law, is get it in writing, whatever it is. Cardinal Spellman, I'm told, was famous for saying to some priests, he's talking to some priests about something or other, and he says, well, thank you very much, Monsignor. That was Father Joe Schmoe talking to him. Thank you very much, Monsignor. In other words, he's now said, I'm going to make you a Monsignor. Get it in writing. Get all these things. You know, if a pastor, if a bishop is assigning you to a particular parish, you've got to get that in writing, you know, these kinds of things, right? Okay. So that's Canon 37 in a nutshell. You can skip Canon 38. Canon 39, conditions affecting validity. Conditions in an administrative act are considered added for validity only when they are expressed by the particles if, C in Latin, unless, nisi, or provided that, dum modo. So it has to say specifically that this is necessary for validity, any condition put in an administrative act. Skip Canon 40, skip Canon 41, skip Canon 42, and skip all these, 43, 44. Canon 46, in case there's a question, an administrative act does not cease when the authority of the one who established it expires unless the law expressly provides otherwise. So Cardinal Doan is putting all these pastors, right? That's what he does, right? So if he retires in five years, it doesn't mean all the pastors have to leave their parishes. It continues, even though his authority may not still be there, right? Okay, so you can skip Canon 47. And singular decrees and precepts, Canon 48. A singular decree is an administrative act issued by a competent executive authority in which a decision is given or provision is made for a particular case according to the norms of law. Of their nature, these decisions or provisions do not presuppose a petition made by someone. So it's an administrative act. You have these five elements listed on page 109, right? So it's an administrative act. An executive authority, right? The person must be competent to issue the executive authority, like the vicar general, somebody like that. It communicates a decision or makes some provision. It says settle some controverted matter or provides for some need of the church. That's basically it. There may or may not have been a petition for it. So that's a singular decree in a nutshell, okay? You don't have to know this in detail, but just know that it's issued by an executive authority that deals with some situation, a particular situation, as opposed to a general executory decree, okay? 
can afford it on a singular precept, I've already mentioned this, is a decree which directly and legitimately enjoins a specific person or persons to do or remit something, especially in order to observe the, uh, in order to observe the law. So, Father, you are reminded you are required to refrain from getting drunk in public. Um, um, all right, you can skip Canon 50. Canon 51, just note a decree is to be issued in writing with the reasons at least some summarily expressed if it is a decision. So you need you usually need the reasons for it. Canon 51. Um, Canon 52 is important. A singular decree has force only in respect to the matters which it decides and for the persons for whom it was given. It obliges these persons everywhere, however, unless it is otherwise evident. It's only specific to the particular matter, the particular persons that are addressed. Okay. Uh, don't worry about Canon 53 um, or 54 or 55. You can skip all those, right? So just mark those. And just skipping um, can, can skip Canon 56. Canon 57 um, <clears throat> uh, whenever the law orders a decree to be issued or an interested party legitimately proposes <clears throat> a petition or recourse to obtain a decree, the common authority to provide for the matter within three months from the receipt of the petition. Um, when this time period has passed, if the decree has not yet been given, the response is presumed to be negative. Um, that presumed negative response does not exempt the competent authority from the obligation of issuing the decree to even repairing the damage possibly incurred. So this can happen, especially in a large diocese with busy um, officials. Um, the, uh, if you um, propose a petition to, to a legitimate authority and you don't hear from them within three months, you can presume the, the answer is negative, you know, but they still have to, um, um, you still have the possibility of appealing it, and also uh, the, the negative response has to address any damage that's done. So just, just to bear in mind, I'm not going to quiz you on this, but um, technically, if, if you were requesting something from the vicar general, say, or the archbishop or whatever, you don't hear from them in three months, Techni technically the presumed response is negative. But usually it's a matter of the fact that they didn't get to it yet. Okay, um, okay don't worry about 1058, that's pretty obvious. Um, rescripts, Canon 59. A rescript is an administrative act issued in writing by competent executive authority. Of its very nature, a rescript grants a privilege, dispensation, or other favor at someone's request. So a rescript is something you request, and a rescript literally means writing back. Um, so Canon 59, number one, you need to know just what a rescript is. You've been dealing with rescripts, as I said, typically dispensations and things like that. Um, Canon 60 is interesting. Any rescript can be requested by all those who are not expressly prohibited from doing so. So um, you can request a favor for someone else, right? Um, and and um, as long as you're not prohibited from doing so. Typically, uh, rescripts come if a uh, bishop of a diocese is requesting that so-and-so uh, be made a monsignor. You know, um, you can do it without the person's um, uh, knowledge. Canon 61, unless it is otherwise evident, a, re a rescript can be requested for another even without the person's assent and as forced before the person's acceptance, right? So. Um, 
that's happened sometimes that uh, um, the, the bishop of the diocese requests that so and so be made him a senior and so and so doesn't want to be made him a senior. You know, well, too bad. You know, I didn't ask you. I don't have to ask you because Canon 61 tells me I don't have to. Now you're a senior. I mean, it's a favor. It's a rescript. Rescript is is a favor. Um, and anyone can request it if they're not re, uh, prohibited from doing so. So, so I, I suppose technically, I've never done this, but I suppose technically, uh, you could request a rescript from the Bishop of the Diocese for uh, a dispensation for uh, marriage. They'd probably say, well, who's doing the marriage? Why are you asking for it? Why is the priest or deacon doing it? You know, uh, it? But that's something else. But anyone, anyone can normally request a rescript, and it can be done even without the person's knowledge if you're requesting a favor for someone else. Okay, Canon 62 you skip. Canon 63, it's, it's good to know these, um, these terms um, and the, these, these situations. Subreption and obreption. You with me? Canon no. 63, it speaks about subreption and obreption. Subreption is, um, is concealment of the truth, and obreption is, is a statement of a falsehood. So subrection or concealment of the truth prevents the validity of a rescript if the request of those things um, uh, those things were not expressed, which according to law, style, and canonical practice must be expressed for validity. Um, obrection or a statement of falsehood also prevents the validity of a rescript if not even one proposing motivating reason is true. So, um, uh, so uh, well, ju just what it says: subrection, concealment of the truth. Um, the, um, a, a, the falsehood. A priest, uh, a bishop is requesting um, that so and so be made a bishop, right? Um, he conceals the fact that he's uh, that he's he went off and got married. You know? So he's subreption. He's hiding something that would affect uh, his qualification to become to become bishop. Or obreption, statement of a false a falsehood. I heard uh, once about a. Um, there was a priest who was uh, somehow he got involved with a tribunal in a diocese, and, um, and he had no qualifications to it, whatever. He was just interested in doing it, and you know they were so busy in the tribunal they didn't pay that much attention to him. He ran around doing all sorts of things and acting like a big shot in the tribunal and so forth. Um, the vicar general of the diocese didn't know any better. Nobody had said anything uh, about it, and this guy wanted to become a judge in the tribunal. So the, um, the vicar general wrote a letter uh, signed by the bishop of the diocese saying that so-and-so is supposedly qualified to become a judge on the tribunal, uh, and he meets all the qualifications. He met none of the qualifications, except that he was a priest. You know, um, He had no training in canon law. Uh, he had no knowledge of the law. As a matter of fact, he was opposed to uh, some of the basic teachings of the church uh, about marriage and so forth. Um, so that, that would have been abreption, a statement of falsehood. He said this person is qualified. No, he's not qualified. No. So subreption and abreption, right? And subreption uh, or, um, or abreption, uh, you're saying this person has all these qualifications uh, to do whatever it is. And if not one of those is true, not one of those is true, then the whole thing um, is invalid, according to this, right? It makes the rescript itself invalid. Um, the same with subrection. Right? Um, if, it, if, it, if, if it conceals the truth. 
Don't worry about the appealing from one dicastery to the other in 64. Um, and in 65, something that comes up sometimes, uh, especially in the large diocese, so it's important to know this, Canon 65. Um, without prejudice to the prescripts of numbers two and three, no one is to petition from another ordinary, favor denied by one's own ordinary, unless mention of the denial has been made. When this mention has been made, however, the ordinary is not to grant the favor unless he has obtained the reasons for the denial from the prior ordinary. I want to be a priest. I go to my uh, my bishop, and he says, okay, go to the seminary. Uh, the seminary guy bombs out. He fails all his courses. Uh, he, he's terrible at teaching religion in the in, um, parish where he's sent and so forth, and they decide to uh, uh, kick him out of the seminary. So he's kicked out of seminary. He, he asks the bishop of that diocese to ordain him. The bishop sends him to the seminary and then says, no, I'm not going to ordain you. Guy then goes to the other part of the country, you know, the other side of the country, where he's not known, and he applies to, uh, in another diocese, say, uh, I don't know why I'm thinking of Reno, Nevada at the moment, but say he goes to Reno, Nevada, um, and asks the poor bishop of Reno, Nevada to take him as a, as a seminarian. And he doesn't mention anything at all about having been to a seminary before, right? So the bishop says, oh, yeah, fine, you know, he takes him to the seminary, you know. Um, um, or he does mention, worse would be, he does mention, I was in another seminary, but, you know, I didn't like it there, and so, but, uh, you know, now I want to come here because I like the weather in, in Reno, you know. Uh, the bishop doesn't bother to ask the bishop of uh, the other diocese what happened, you know. Um, then, um, this favor that he's asking for is invalid right? uh, because he didn't um, and there's specific laws about seminaries that have to do with this but uh, you have to ask the bishop has to ask the other bishop what's the problem otherwise um, he's not to grant the favor right? um, I, 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 I stand corrected it's not invalid if he does this because it doesn't say that here it says he's not to do it doesn't say it'll be invalid if he does it, but he's not to do it. Right? Uh, however, the second one has to do with validity, number two. Uh, and this happens sometimes. A favor denied by a vicar general or by an Episcopal vicar cannot be granted validly by another vicar of the same bishop, even if the reasons for the denial have been obtained from the vicar who denied it. So if, if the, um, the vicar for, um, uh, for I, I don't know, southern, southern Manhattan denies uh, that you... Um, can have some activity, whatever it is. And then you go to a vicar in Westchester and, um, and tell him, well, the other vicar said I can't do this, but I want, I want to do it up here. He can't do it, all right? So if one vicar has denied something, another vicar cannot um, then say yes to it. Okay? So you can't, you can't appeal from one vicar to another. Um, nor can you go uh, appeal from the vicar general or an Episcopal vicar to the diocesan bishop. Okay? So if you ask something from the vicar general or an Episcopal vicar, they deny it. And then you go to the bishop of the diocese, make the same request, but don't mention that they had denied it. Uh, and the bishop says yes. It's invalid. It's invalid. The bishop can't just do whatever he wants. It's invalid if, if, if another uh, if a vicar has denied it. Right? Um, 
On the other hand, a favor denied by a diocesan bishop, um, even if mention is made of the denial, cannot be obtained validly from his vicar general or episcopal vicar without the consent of the bishop. So, uh, if a if a, a vicar denies you something, and you go to the diocesan bishop, uh, you have to tell him, Monsignor so and so denied this. Um, otherwise, even if the bishop says yes, it's invalid. The other way around, if the bishop has already told you no, you can't appeal that to the to the vicar general or another vicar. Okay. It's getting totally confusing. Yeah. So just get get to know that scenario. Um, uh, because it will, um, it, it'll inevitably come up in, in the confusion of a, of, of a large diocese. Um, can skip Canon 67. Right, where's 66? Um, uh, skip 66 and 67, and 68, and 69, and 70. Um, you can skip. You can skip right through Canon 75. Skip all of that. You uh, can also skip the entire section on privileges, Canon 76 to 84. Skip all of that. Okay, um, so if you read over, I know I went through this pretty quickly because uh, there's so much to be covered. Um, and so that's all we can do. But uh, most of the stuff you do not have to know in detail, but to be somewhat familiar uh, with them. And I might pre present to you situations based on some of these, like what I just mentioned about appealing from a vicar general to another vicar or to the diocese of bishop, something like that. So uh, know, know that somewhere. Okay. Uh, then you can skip everything after that. And next time we will get into dispensations, which are very, very important, uh, beginning with Canon 85. So if you want to read ahead, you can read. Uh, commentary on dispensations beginning with Canon 85. Okay. So, sorry we're going so fast, but we, you know, that's the nature of this course. We're squeezing about three courses into one. Too bad. Okay. I don't understand anything. Good. Okay. Thank you all. Thank you. Good